0: When we last left the Apostles, the 11, they were most likely standing there on the edge of the Kidron Valley. Uh, it is now uh, nearing morning. They've spent the night in an upper room with Jesus, uh, not only um, Taking of the Passover, what we call the Last Supper with him, but also having had their feet washed by him and, and also having heard from him all kinds of things that are going to happen. And Scripture tells us that their hearts, through all of that, have been troubled. In fact, Scripture tells us that Jesus' heart was troubled that night. His heart was troubled because of what he was about to face uh, come the dawn, their hearts were troubled by what he was telling them he was going to face and all of the uncertainties that they had. Last week we began to look at what is popularly known as the high priestly prayer beginning in John 17. That is where Jesus has concluded his instruction to these men and he has capped it off prior to heading over into the Garden of Gethsemane with his longest recorded prayer. If you look at the structure of the prayer, as I mentioned last week, it actually follows the structure of the prayer that the high priest would pray on the Day of Atonement. The high priest would begin by praying for himself, and then he would continue to pray for those closest to him, his family and his closest friends relatives. And then he would move outward and begin praying for all of Israel. And this is what we see Jesus do. Last week, uh, we began by looking at his prayer for himself in uh, 17 verses 1 through 5. Today, we'll begin looking at his prayer for those closest to him, the 11 that are standing there with him that night. Our text is John chapter 17. We're going to be looking specifically today closely at verses 6 through 12. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you as always to uh, open them up and follow along. As I preach, I'll be looking at specific verses and and different words. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow along that way, if you look in the chairs in front of you underneath, you should see a Bible there. And it's on page 903. I'll begin uh, with, cha- uh, with verse 1 just to uh, get the context again. John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus begins this section praying for His apostles by saying to God the Father, I have manifested Your name. That word is... uh, that it is translated in this ESV manifested. Um, we don't typically use that English word. Uh, another way to translate that is revealed, or made known, or disclosed. Jesus is saying, "I have revealed your name." Now, if you look at the the entire prayer, which we didn't look at this morning, we didn't go to the very end, but you'll see that this concept of God's name is strewn all throughout this prayer. It's very important. In fact, Jesus mentions God's name in John chapter 12. But here in this prayer, you see not only in verse 6 here, but in verse 11, "'Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me.'" Verse 12, "'While I was with them, I kept them in your name.'" And then if you go all the way down to the end, verse 26, the last verse, I made known to them your name. And here Jesus is saying uh, in verse 6, I have revealed your name. Now scholars are basically unified in this that, that when, you, when you think of a name, someone's name in uh, scripture, it means typically a lot more than names mean to us today. Generally, when we name someone, we just pick a name. Uh, sometimes we, we, we pick it because it's, you know, maybe uh, related to a relative that we have or, or someone that we admired, but oftentimes it's just we look in a book of names and we pick a name that, you know, both husband and wife agree is a good name, and that's about it. But in Scripture, you see over and over again that, the, that people are named according to their character, that, uh, for instance, Jacob is named because he is a deceiver and a usurper. And you kind of see this all throughout Scripture. And so when Jesus is talking about God's name, Yahweh, uh, he's talking about more than just a name. He's, he's not saying that. He's, he's talking about God's character. God's character. So to reveal God's name is to make God's character known. And so what Jesus is saying here is that as God the Son incarnate, as God the eternal Word now come to earth and taken on flesh, he, for the 33 years that he has been alive, and probably most specifically during the last three years of his ministry, He has been the revealer of God. He hasn't just been speaking about God, but through his life, through his actions, through everything he says, through everything he's done, he has perfectly revealed God. Colossians chapter 1 talks about this. Paul says he, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, and in him all the fullness of god was pleased to dwell the author of hebrews first chapter first couple of verses he talks about how god is a revealing god god is a speaking god and he says long ago at many times and in many different ways god spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he is spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. The Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So you can see here clearly the New Testament, uh, even after these words that Jesus says, is very clear that Jesus was not simply a man. That Jesus was... 100% man and 100% God. And Jesus made clear when he said, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. So that's one way to understand this, that Jesus is simply pointing to the fact that he is the perfect revelation of God. But I think it's important to note, and I think you find this theme in John in particular, I think it's important to note that in the Old Testament, it was the tabernacle... Slash temple. The temple was the later, more permanent version of the tabernacle. It was the tabernacle and temple where God said he specifically placed his name. If you wanted to know where God's name was placed, he says in Deuteronomy chapter 12, when he's telling the people where to worship him, where does he want them to go to worship and to sacrifice? He says, I don't want you to go to these other altars. Uh, the high places, I want you to go to my tabernacle. And he says, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. So you see, he says, there you shall go and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices. There you shall bring your tithes and the contribution your vow offerings, your free will offerings, the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. So God says it's in the tabernacle and the temple that I'm going to place my name and it's there where I will dwell. My name will be there and I will be there in the tabernacle and in the temple. And interestingly, John, if you go back to John chapter 1, When he's talking about Jesus being the eternal Word, who was with God from all eternity. When he speaks of Jesus taking on flesh and becoming a man, he specifically puts it as the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that word dwelt is tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Furthermore, Jesus, when he cleansed the temple for the first time and made a whip and drove out the money changers, he specifically said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But John says, But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So you see, right from the beginning of John, that Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the tabernacle. He is what the temple and tabernacle foreshadowed. He is that par excellence, God's glory was revealed in the temple. The sacrifice for sin was made in the temple. And in the person of Jesus, you have God's glory revealed and you have God's final sacrifice made. So Jesus has revealed God's name And notice he's revealed it to a select group of people. He says, I have revealed your name to those you have given me. Now again, at this point in the prayer, Jesus is speaking here of the apostles themselves. And he says, you have given them to me. They were yours, but you gave them to me. It's really interesting how he phrases this. Because when you... Look at what Jesus is saying here. In some way, Jesus is saying that the apostles were owned by God the Father antecedently to Jesus' ministry, and that at some point they were given to him, that the Father owned them and gave them to him. So in that sense, these men were gifts that God the Father gave to God the Son. They were gifts given to him. Now, the question is when did this transaction take place? When were these men given to Jesus by God the Father? Well, I think, as so many times in the Gospel of John, I think you can look at it in two ways. <clears throat> One way you can look at it is that God the Father gave these men as gifts to God the Son from all eternity, that, that these men were gifts eternally given by God the eternal Father to God the eternal Son from before the world began. When you're thinking about God the Son, not God the Son incarnate, but God the eternal Word, God the Son eternal, there isn't anything that the Father possesses that the Son doesn't also possess from all eternity. There couldn't be because God the Son is everything God the Father is. They have everything, uh, all attributes, in uh, common possession. So in that sense, these apostles were eternally given by the Father to the Son in what, again, we call, and I mentioned last week, the covenant of redemption. If you look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he talks about this. Paul specifically is talking about all Christians, not just the apostles. He's now extended it to you and to me. But he says clearly here, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's talking about God the Father who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless. In love, God the Father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So scripture is very clear there, that in one sense, all of God's people, including these apostles, were given to Jesus from all eternity by God the Father you can also look at it in a different way and that is that these 11 men were given to jesus by god the father in space and time that when jesus took on flesh and walked among us that at some point in time these men came to him in faith they decided to follow him and if you think about how that happened scripture tells us in space and in time jesus grew up in Nazareth, born in Bethlehem. At some point in time, he began to wander around and teach and he ran into different people. And as he got to know them, they got to know him. And if you remember back in in our early chapters of John, he even had a smaller little band that kind of followed him down south and all of that and and saw him change water into wine. And, And then later when he entered Uh, Capernaum and and that area around the Sea of Galilee, full time, then he started meeting others and calling them to himself. And he called these men to be his disciples. He said, Follow me. And these men uh, took uh, sort of account of their own lives and, and listened to what he said and saw the things he did. And then they decided to follow him and they dropped their nets and went after him. It's interesting that as a man, What did Jesus do all night before the day before he went and selected the 12 out of all of his disciples? He actually went away and prayed all night long before he went and selected out of that whole group of disciples that he had, the 12 that he would call apostles. What was he praying for? Well, we don't know. We don't don't have the the content of that prayer like we have here. But in, in my mind, as a man, Jesus was praying to the Father that the Father would give him wisdom and insight as to who he would choose as his 12. So, you see, on the one hand, these 11 were chosen and given to Jesus eternally before the world began. And at the same time, these men were chosen and given to Jesus in space and time as he walked in his earthly ministry. So Jesus was sent to earth to take on flesh, to redeem a people who had been chosen before the world began. And yet at the same time, that didn't negate the fact that he was here to perform that mission didn't negate the normal processes of how that eternal election played out in space and time. And that's true for every single one of us. When we come to faith in Christ, I mean, think of your own spiritual journey, if you want to call it that way. How how did you come to faith in Christ? Probably for, I would If I was a betting man, be willing to bet that for everyone in this room, you came to faith somehow by some ordinary means. Uh, You either had a Christian friend, maybe someone gave you a tract, maybe you went to a church and heard a sermon, maybe you were in a hotel and you pulled out a Gideon's Bible. Something happened in your life where you felt called to follow Jesus, And it was normal. It was just how things happened. And yet, what we know from Scripture is that just like these guys, while you were making decisions and thinking about it and and pondering whether or not you would follow Jesus, God had elected you from before the world began. We notice here why they were chosen. Notice, specifically, that it wasn't because they were intrinsically special or righteous in any way. Look at what Jesus says, I have revealed your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. You gave them to me out of the world. Remember, in the gospel of John, the term world doesn't just mean the earth. It means Sinful humanity. The world means that mass of humanity that is in rebellion against God. That world, that mass of humanity that is in darkness and loves the darkness rather than the light. Jesus is saying here in his prayer that even though these men were the elect of God, that in time and space, they were just as lost as anyone else before Jesus called them and before the Holy Spirit empowered them. They were in the world just like we all were. And that's exactly how God always operated. If you look back in the Old Testament, God chose Abraham. Why did he choose him? Scripture makes it clear that Abraham was a pagan before God chose him. He wasn't following God. God chose him out of all the people in the world and said, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. Later on, as as Israel was about to enter the promised land, God speaks to them as a people. He says, "You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth." And you might think that they're thinking, "Well, wow, that's we must be something special if God chose us out of all the people on the earth." I mean, you know, you watch an NFL draft. That's why they pick certain guys. You know, I'm not gonna receive a call from an NFL team, and neither are any of you, probably. I don't know much about all of you, but but that's not why God chose them. Out of all the people in the world, you're my treasured possession. And then he specifically goes on to say, it's not because you were more in number than any of the people that the world that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. In fact, you were the fewest of all peoples. God is highlighting how weak and inept this group of people were when he chose them and paul in the book of ephesians where he in chapter one talks about how we're elect before the foundation of the world in chapter two he says the same thing about us as believers he says and you christian the one you who were elect before the foundation of the world you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, you followed the course of the world, followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. You were by nature, Christian, a child of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. I mean, he couldn't be more clear there. And then he says, but God, you see, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when you were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Paul couldn't be more clear here. And the church is exactly that. That's what that word ecclesia, the Greek word that we translate church, it means a called-out assembly of saints an assembly of saints who have been called out of the world. That's why, in order to be a member of a church, you have to be a sinner. If I ever do a membership interview with someone and say, how are you getting to heaven? And they say, by my own righteousness. I know they're not one of the called out assembly of saints. Because every me- everyone who is in Christ got that way because they first realized how much they desperately needed him because they were sinners. Every single one of us, Christian, every single one of us in this room is a sinner saved by grace alone. Every single one of us, Christian, have been chosen just, by, just like these apostles by God the Father, and every single one of us is therefore a gift given by God the Father to God the Son. Jesus says here, they have kept your word. Now you think about how roughshod these apostles have been. How horribly they've screwed things up. How how much they, even after the resurrection, still get wrong. And yet Jesus says here, they have kept your word. What does that mean? Well, it can't mean that they have perfectly kept God's word. There's no way that he could mean that. But look at verses seven and eight, because I think here it fleshes out what he means. He says, Now they know that everything you've given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them, and they've come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I think, in essence, what Jesus is explaining here is what we call saving faith. And what he's outlining here is is what we detail. If you you want to say, well, what does saving faith, uh, what components are there to saving faith? I think that's, in essence, what Jesus is saying. Because saving faith is more than just knowledge, Saving faith includes knowledge. You have to know something about Jesus to be saved. If if you don't know anything about him, or if what you know about him is false, then you're not going to know him as the true Jesus. He says, they have come to know. They've come to know. Everything you've given me is from you, and they've come to know that I came from you. These apostles have come to know a lot of things about him that others haven't. And then, saving faith not only has knowledge, but it has assent. Assent. A-S-S-E-N-T. This assent is believing the things that you know about Jesus or the content that you've heard about Jesus, believing that those things are true. So, you've heard that Jesus is God the Son, that he was born in Bethlehem, that he died on the cross, that he was raised again on the third day. You can hear all of these things and know these facts about this person called Jesus, but unless you believe they're true, how can you have saving faith? It doesn't, doesn't help you if, if, if you just know facts but believe that they're false. The problem is that Mere knowledge and assent is not saving faith. After all, Scripture says that Satan and that the demons believe all of these things to be true about Jesus. All you have to do is read through the Gospels to see that more than anyone else, it was Satan and it was the demons who professed. I mean, if you just heard their profession of faith, you'd think they were the strongest believers in the world. While everybody else had their doubts about Jesus and wasn't quite sure what he was about, it was the demons that would say, we know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. It was Satan who looked at Jesus and said, since you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. He knew who he was. That's exactly why he went and tempted him directly, because he knew that he was God in the flesh. James says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder it's not enough to have knowledge and assent for true saving faith it must also involve trust 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 is knowing the facts about jesus believing that these facts are true and then trusting him with your eternal future it's turning away from whatever else you may cling to for your for hope and saying, Jesus, because I believe these things about you, I'm turning to you and you alone. You alone can save me. That is what Satan and the demons refuse to do. They refuse to bow the knee. That is what so many refuse to do. Even those who believe things are true about Jesus. I had worked in so many jobs prior to being a pastor, where I was just out in in the world selling cars or uh, worked at at a newspaper worked at a gym. I mean, there were all these different jobs that I had, and and there were lots of people I worked with who actually believed these things were true about Jesus. I I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was expecting, you know, in in some sense to just run into a whole bunch of atheists who just denied everything the Bible said, but... But what I ran into is more, so many of them said, oh yeah, I believe Jesus died and rose from the dead. But then, you know, they wanted to be their own God. Like, well, I do believe that, but there's no way I'm submitting to him. If, if, if I have to bow the knee to him and give up my life, forget that. That's that's what they weren't doing. And Jesus says that here. They have come to know all these things, they've come to know them truly, and they have believed that you sent me. What about you? I don't know where your hearts are this morning. Where are you on that scale? Have you decided that there's nothing else in this life worth trusting Your eternal future to than the Lord Jesus Christ or are you acknowledging truths about him and yet turning away and following yourself as God I don't know but in verse 9 Jesus says something rather startling he says I am praying for them I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now I mentioned last week that if you're standing there, if you're one of these apostles, and you hear him say, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world began, that probably would have been a mind-blowing thing to hear. That this guy who you've had meals with, who you've laughed with, who you've seen uh, get hungry, who just washed your dirty feet, would then say, to God, that I had glory with you from all eternity. But if that blows your mind, maybe this does even more. Because Jesus says out loud, audibly, Father, I am praying for these men. If you're standing there and you hear him say that, this one who is in perfect fellowship with the Father says out loud, Father, right now I am interceding on behalf of these men. How would that make you feel? You know, I've, I've thought about how precious it's been to me over the years when someone, a fellow Christian, that I have shared something with, a struggle that I've got in my life or something that's really bothering me or, or, or a sin or, or something like that, has, before we depart, said, Why don't i pray for you right now about that issue and has put his hand on my shoulder and said i want to pray right now for the lord to the lord for that and and that has been something that that i've been asking god to to help grow me in because how often do you hear something and a fellow brother and sister tell you something and you say i'll be praying for that and how often do you totally forget and then they call you or you see them down the hallway and you say, Lord, please, you know, you, you remember at that moment that you said you'd pray and you quick say a quick prayer for them because you forgot, you, you, you realize like you never did pray for them and you feel guilty about it. If you just pray for them in the moment, then like these men, they will hear you interceding on behalf of them. But he says, Father, I'm praying for these guys standing here. Notice how Jesus makes a clear distinction here between the world and those whom you have given me. The emphasis here in the Greek is is very strong. He says, I am not very strongly praying for the world. I'm only praying for them. Now when you read that, you say, well, does Jesus hate the world then? Well, clearly not. Because in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send him, His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Again, how many times does John use the phrase the world there? All of this was for the good of the world. Furthermore, If you just think about Jesus obeying God's law, Jesus, again, he's the only one who's ever lived who every second of his life perfectly fulfilled the law of God. God's law, Jesus boils down to two loves. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God perfectly with all you have and love every single person around you perfectly with all you have. Jesus says that's the law, and Jesus had to perfectly fulfill the law every second of his life to be the lamb without blemish, which means that Jesus loved every person that he came in contact with perfectly. If you think you love people well, Jesus blows you away. There isn't a person that Jesus met that he didn't love perfectly. Jesus loved his enemies. Jesus prayed for those who persecuted him. Everything that you find in Scripture that's hard to do, Jesus did that. And he did it to a perfect degree. However, however, when we think about the atonement, Jesus came to die for his chosen people. Jesus makes it clear. Mark 10, 45, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Isaiah 53, what we had is our assurance of pardon. Out of the anguish of his soul, my servant shall see and be satisfied. By By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities our Advent reading from Matthew chapter 1. Joseph, son of David, the angel says, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus here, in this high priestly prayer, as the high priest is interceding, standing, as it were, at the right hand of God the Father, and he's interceding not on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those people that he is saving out of the world. Why is Jesus doing this? Why is he praying for them? He says it here, I am praying for them because they are yours. 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are his. Jesus said, I know my sheep and my sheep know me and I give my life for the sheep. Verse 10, Jesus says, see, all mine are yours, Father, and all yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Notice here, Jesus is proclaiming equal ownership with the Father, but he's also saying... And if the last thing he said didn't blow your mind, if you're standing there, this ought to blow your mind. Because he's saying that he is actually glorified in these guys. I am glorified in them. And that's an amazing statement when you consider just who these guys are. These guys are, in many ways, a terrible group of guys. Think about Peter. Peter is this brash guy who actually had the gall to rebuke Jesus to his face right after saying that he was the Christ. You have James and John who who had the gall to to ask that they sit on the right and left hand of Jesus in his kingdom. They also had the gall to say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy the Samaritan village that just rejected you? You've got Matthew, who is a tax collector, who's basically a traitor to his own people, who works for the Roman gover- uh, government, who overtaxes his people, probably stole a lot of their money. He's one of them. You have Simon the Zealot, who's on the opposite end of Matthew. He's this guy that hates the Romans so much, he's, he's probably in secret, uh, learning how to knife these guys in the dark and try to overtake the Roman government by force. And then you have Nathaniel who when he heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, said, huh, that dump? Can anything good come from there? How in the world can Jesus be glorified in these guys? Well, he says it through the power of God himself. Look at verse 11. I am no longer in the world. They are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus is pointing to him physically leaving the world. He's already talked about this. How are they going to continue on? That's what they've been troubled by. Jesus, you're leaving us. How can you believe it? You're our master. You're our teacher. How are they going to carry on without him? Well, Jesus says, Holy Father, which is the only time, interestingly, in the whole Bible that that combination of words is ever used of God. Holy Father, right there. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Here, in this whole prayer of John 17, this is actually the first petition that is uttered by Jesus. Everything leading up to this uh, is, is, is t- kind of background. And, and, and here we find the first petition that Jesus makes for these men. And the petition is, father keep them in your name what's he asking the father for i believe he's asking the father for divine protection these men are going to be left alone he said i'm coming to you they will still be in the world i won't be he's he's asking the father to protect them but what kind of protection well he's not asking for ultimately for physical protection Because he's already told them that they're going to be persecuted and eventually killed. So it's not that kind of protection. He's asking the Father for spiritual protection. He's asking God the Father to protect them from falling away. That's why he's saying, keep them in your name. He's asking the Father, keep them in the vine. Later on, history tells us that the Roman Empire uh, would round up Christians... Christians who, after Christ died and rose and the church began, were proclaiming Jesus as Lord, and the Roman Empire would round them up and say, we want you to say Caesar is Lord. The Christian who didn't do what Rome said were fed to the lions, burned at the stake, all kinds of things. How would these Christians remain? Jesus saying, Father, you keep them in your name. In short, Jesus is asking the Father to do in his absence what Jesus has been doing all along. Look at verse 12. See, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction. That scripture might be fulfilled. Now, if after having heard in this prayer that you were one of the chosen, that you are a gift that the Father gave to the Son, that, that the Father chose you from before the foundation of the world, you may have begun to be a little puffed up. You remember how when Jesus said to these guys before Judas left, one of you will betray me, they didn't all immediately look at Judas and say, well, we know it's him. That guy's been bad since day one. In fact, they all looked at it around and said, is it me? Am I the one that's going to betray you? Judas didn't stand out as exceptionally bad. But you wonder if since Judas has now gone out and left the Lord, if these guys who are remaining are starting to think back on the things that maybe Judas didn't do so well. You wonder if these guys are now, in twenty twenty hindsight, thinking about how Judas was sometimes a little bit stingy. Yeah, maybe we can see why Judas was the one who fell away. And if you begin to think that way, then what Jesus is saying right now is not only a prayer for the Father to keep you from falling away after he departs, but what he's saying here. Is that the only reason you're standing there with him right now on the edge of the Kidron Valley and Judas isn't is because he kept you faithful all along? Jesus tells the Father, I have kept all of these guys in your name. I've protected them and that's why none of them is lost. Christian, we have to understand that the only reason any one of us is here today, the only reason that any one of us hasn't turned and walked away from the Lord is because he has kept us to himself. If it were up to us, we would have walked away on day two after coming to faith. And if that weren't enough, Jesus puts one final nail in the self-righteous coffin because he says, none of them were lost except the son of destruction which is Judas. Now you may have heard Jesus say that I've kept these men all along, but maybe you're thinking, okay, he's kept me, but he couldn't keep Judas because Judas was just that bad. He's powerful, but he's not that powerful. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, the only one I lost is Judas, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus is about to say the same thing about his death and resurrection. When they come to lay hands on him, one of them who who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew out his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Don't you think I can appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But then how should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus, when he's arrested and being sent to the cross, he said, the main reason this is happening is so that the Scriptures may be fulfilled. Even when speaking of Judas's defection, he places the emphasis on God's sovereign will revealed in Scripture. See, when we come to correctly understand salvation when we come to correctly understand election, God's sovereign saving of us despite our being dead in sins, then we can't possibly end up in a place of self-righteousness and smugness. How can we? It's impossible. There's an old hymn called My Lord, I Did Not Choose You. It says, My Lord, I did not choose you, for that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. Unless your grace had called me and taught my opening mind, the world would have enthralled me to heaven, heavenly glories blind. My Lord, I did not choose you, for that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. My heart knows none above you. For your rich grace I thirst. I know that if I loved you, you must have loved me first. Christian, this is Advent. Why did Jesus come to earth? Well, it's what the angel said to Joseph. Call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There was no maybe about it. Jesus didn't come to earth on a maybe. He didn't come to earth and die on the cross to potentially save somebody. And maybe they would, and maybe they wouldn't, and maybe it would all be in vain. Our final hymn, The Church is One Foundation, which we're about to sing, reminds us of just how precious we, the church, are to him. Listen to these words that we're about to sing. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. When Jesus came to earth, brothers and sisters, he came to die to give his life for his bride. And if you are here this morning, when Jesus proclaimed it is finished on the cross, He was saying, I have completed my mission. I have saved my bride. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for this prayer. We're thankful, Lord, that your son made it clear that he came for his bride. And Lord, we are just so overwhelmed this morning that you would reach out to us in your grace. Though we didn't deserve it, Your son died for us. And may we leave here with gratitude. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.